Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and Corridor Aesthetics.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. The American Buffalo, a new two-part documentary directed by Ken Burns and written by Dayton Duncan, premieres on PBS nationwide on October 16th and 17th. Here is where it begins. In the spring of 1805, the Lewis and Clark expedition reached what is now Montana, near where the Yellowstone and Missouri rivers meet moving farther west than any white Americans had ever gone. Along the way, they had encountered tribes of native people who for hundreds of generations had called the bountiful land home. Wildlife seemed to be everywhere and in astonishing numbers, Meriwether Lewis wrote, particularly the buffalo. The whole face of the country was covered with herds of buffalo, elk, and antelopes. The buffalo frequently approach us, more nearly to discover what we are, and in some instances pursue us a considerable distance, apparently with that view. Less than a century later, in 1887, another expedition would explore the same region they hoped to find some buffaloes to kill and then preserve for an exhibit at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. They searched for three months without seeing a single one. Over four hours, the film establishes the dominance of bison in North America pre-settlement, how important bison were and are in many indigenous cultures, and how European settlers and their descendants brought the species to the brink of extinction. It also tells the story of the bison's return. The filmmakers behind this documentary and so many other award-winning and influential films are with me now. Ken Burns, welcome. Thank you so much, Charity. Great to be with you. And Dayton Duncan, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. So this film takes you both back into familiar territory uh, with many films and stories that you've told before of the American West. The story of the bison has been part of a number of the stories you've told. And Ken, why don't you start? What made you decide that it was time to really focus on the story of bison? Well, we felt it was time to focus on the story of bison for over 30 years. Uh, we did, as you indicated, made a film on the history of the West in the mid-90s, and then a little bit later, uh, one on Lewis and Clark, and then, of course, the large series on the national parks, all of which had bison components. But we had, even before the West was done, been talking among ourselves, having produced numerous biographies up to then and many, many more since then, and biography being a, a constituent building block of all of the larger series, wouldn't it be interesting to do a biography of an animal because we knew how much the buffalo would touch on from a different perspective or at least give a fresh perspective on the 12,000 years of Native American inhabitants in relationship with this magnificent animal and also the more recent story that you alluded to of, of the beginning of European-American white settlement uh, in, in the West and the tragic uh, near extinction of the buffalo. And 
And in a way, we kept looking for that opening where we'd be able to do it. I feel glad that we waited. New scholarship has helped us understand the better. And I think for us, we may have gotten better as filmmakers, but we certainly are, we're willing this time to present the story, not with just a nod to other points of view, not just a kind of paternalistic, and yes, these are how other people felt about it, but really to yield a certain amount of the film to Native voices and Native scholars and, and people who have this relationship with this animal and know if you've got 600 generations of experience, as, as the uh, Native American scholar Jermaine White says, and the other people have six, you know, it's like an operation. Oh, I've done this operation 600 times. I've just done it six times. You go with the former surgeon. And so we kind of in this film went with the former surgeon and it it helped us tell a story and helped us hear perspectives on this kind of momentum of manifest destiny, which we presume to be one thing is actually another. And and I, I've just working on it now has has been you know life-changing and and incredibly emotional for all of us involved i'm i'm sure and it all issues from dayton's magnificent script well i i i you brought up in such an important subject um the fact that native americans indigenous americans are such a very very big part of this story and really the the symbiotic relationship that so many Native American tribes have had with bison over the centuries, over the millennia. Um, you are two white men at the helm of this story. Dayton, tell me a little bit about how you thought through that process and approached it. Well, I was guided by uh, a fellow who was in this film and who appeared in our film on Lewis and Clark and on National Parks, Gerard Baker, who's a Mandan Hidatsa Indian from North Dakota, who I met when I was doing my first book uh, back in the early 80s about retracing the route of Lewis and Clark. And Gerard was a young um, employee of the National Park Service at the time up in North Dakota. And we became friends. Um, and one of his jobs was to uh, watch over the buffalo herd at Theodore Roosevelt National Park's North Unit. And so um, I had a number of adventures with him, including uh, going with him when he had to track down two runaway bulls and them being too far to be herded back onto the into the park, had to shoot them both. And he and I skinned them and he said, here's our tradition, and thrust a knife toward me with a glistening piece of raw liver, said, you need to take a piece of this because that's how you get the strength and the wisdom of the buffalo. So I did. And, and uh, But anyway, I, we became close friends, and the one thing that uh, he inculcated into me is that if you want to understand the history and the story, of the American buffalo, it's inextricably intertwined with the story of native people on this continent. And if you want to understand the story of native people on this continent, likewise, it's inextricably intertwined with the story of the buffalo. It's, you know, you can say that and everyone can kind of nod your head, but I think until you really rest in it and let enough people tell you enough about it, that it becomes a little more profound of just 
what that meant, not just that you could, you know, they were many, many tribes relied on the bison for their food, for their clothing, for their teepee coverings, for the spoons that they use made from bones to necklaces made from different other parts of bones, how important that was to them for, for that existence, but how it was seamlessly woven into their view of the entire cosmos that they saw, particularly the buffalo, they, they saw themselves not above all the other human, other species on the planet. They saw themselves on equal footing, but with the buffalo, they had a special, they would call it kinship, that, that they were actually related to them back in the stories of the days uh, in the beginnings of, of time. And as Ken said, um, as we've gotten older as filmmakers, uh, probably are more willing to see things to other folks. And uh, we had a great group of people, including my friend Gerard, our friend Gerard Baker, Scott Mamaday, the Kiowa Pulitzer Prize winning writer and, and poet, and uh, a number of descendants of Quanta Parker and so forth. You know, it's about half the people who speak in our film are native. Uh, and many of the voices that we hear, historical voices, are those of uh, native historical uh, voices. But it's also a story of white people and their interaction to it. So we're going to to dive into this story in just a moment. But I would love to hear briefly from the two of you. You've made a lot of films together. You've done a lot of research together. You've brought a, a lot of great television to people all over the United States and all over the world. Tell me a little bit about your collaboration process. Ken, you want to start? Sure. It's It's been one of the singular pleasures of my professional life to, to know Dayton, not just as a colleague, but as a friend for many, many decades and have, have worked on a number of projects together. It is the writer's sort of, I imagine, slightly lonely and singular task to sort of combine and collate a lot of material. Uh, in our process, we do it a little bit different from others. We never stop researching and we never stop writing. So the first draft of Dayton's is not written in stone and coming down from Mount Sinai. Um, it usually is probably twice as long as it needs to be, but we have to have that extra in order to cut it back. But it's all based on that script and the, and the beauty of the language of it, to which we're adding interviews, to which we're adding first-person voice or learning about those first-person voices from Dayton's research and finding those actors that can read off camera that stuff. Meanwhile, while the left hand is doing that, the right hand is off shooting, not necessarily trying to fill a particular line in the script. We're often shooting well before the script is completed, but going out and filming, in this case, the buffalo, collecting uh, footage um, uh, of of the buffalo from from the Mexican border up to uh, Montana and, and North Dakota. Dakota, all through the Great Plains, you know, finding other footage from other wildlife photographers, finding old photographs that document the 19th century story of this, the paintings that do the pre-photographic uh, stuff, and just learning about it. We are so thrilled that 
people around our beautiful, complicated country respond to complicated stories and the undertow that that are there, the contradictions that are sometimes inherent to those stories, and even around the world, that people sort of feel that that these stories that we craft so carefully and only in public media, that's they can't happen anywhere else, that we just aren't given the bandwidth to be able to do the kind of deep dives that we do in any other situation, that they, that they seem to people a kind of lens on who we are, not just who we were, but who we are now. We need to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. The American Buffalo, a two-part documentary directed by Ken Burns and Dayton Duncan, will air on PBS stations nationwide on October 16th and 17th. They've also co-authored the new book, Blood Memory, The Tragic Decline and Improbable Resurrection of the American Buffalo. We'll talk more in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. The American Buffalo, a new two-part documentary directed by Ken Burns and written by Dayton Duncan, premieres on PBS nationwide on October 16th and 17th. Over the course of four hours, the film establishes the dominance of bison in North America pre-settlement. It shows us how important bison were and are in many indigenous cultures, how European settlers and their descendants brought the species to the brink of extinction. It also tells the story of the bison's return, a story full of unusual characters, unlikely collaborations, a whole lot of twists and turns, and of course, the story that is still developing. Duncan and Burns have also co-authored the new book, Blood Memory, The Tragic Decline and Improbable Resurrection of the American Buffalo, and they are both with me today. Before the break, we were talking about your process of collaboration. And Ken, we heard uh, from you a little bit about how that works. And I mean, it sounds like there there is a lot of chemistry and synergy with how all of this research and all of the visuals and the storytelling come together. Dayton, is there anything that you want to add to that when you reflect on how the two of you, along with your team, are able to create these films? Um, I guess the only thing I would add is as a writer who began writing, Ken and I were friends and I was writing books and he was making films and um, somewhere along the way, he invited me, uh, you know, under the tent to, uh, keep writing, but also produce and write films. Um, it's the importance that, that he brings to the, the spoken and written word. You know, I, I, I'm kind of a one trick pony. I just, I've only made documentary films with Ken. Um, and so I'm spoiled, obviously, 
but uh, the attention that uh, he and everyone else therefore pays to what's written, what what you hear um, in the films that we make is of the utmost of importance. <clears throat> and I appreciate that, certainly as a writer. You know, uh, the other thing that always amazes me um, is, you know, I can write a scene and think, well, boy, I, I think this is really good or this has great, great potential. And uh, when we take it, when it moves from page to screen, I realize how wrong I was. It just does, it just doesn't work. Um, and it takes a team to to say, okay, well, m maybe we just need to either throw it completely out or we need to change it. But but um, when we do get it working, the combination of the written word, meaning the spoken word whether it's the narration that I wrote or the historical quote that you hear um, and the interview coming on screen and the visual material and the music, which is equally important, when that all works, I, you know, I'll just be very honest with you. I, I forget that I even wrote it. I mean, because it's just at a different, it's at a different level entirely. And uh, I, I will sometimes be watching a film that we made numbers of years ago and say, wow, I don't recall. <laughs> you know, that's pretty good. But the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Uh, that's the, it's part of, I think, our collaboration uh, of not just Ken and me, but this talented group of editors and other producers that all work together on these films. Is collaboration at its best. I mean, collaboration at its worst can the sum is less than the than the parts, you know? But when it's working well, when everybody's just devoted to one thing, which isn't how much of my stuff are you following versus somebody else's advice, it's, it's all about how can we polish this, make this better, make this more impactful. And when that when that's all happening, it gets to be something better than I think either of us would say if we if I did it by myself, it wouldn't have been half as good. Now, I, again, like much of America, have been watching your films for decades. And um, I mean, one of the beautiful things is that I, of course, always learn something that I hadn't known before. What I really enjoy about this film in particular is there there's so much depth to the history that you're telling. I think back to the history books that, you know, I had when I was in high school that said, okay, you know, bison were very important to Native American people. The railroad came and hunters slaughtered all the bison and they almost disappeared. But there's so much to that story. There are so many people who are culpable and responsible in that, but I think that the most important part of that story is how intertwined and deliberate the destruction of the bison was with the destruction of Native American cultures. And, and that wasn't a story that my history textbook wanted to tell. Um, Dayton, that's a that's a story that I feel like nuances of that keep getting revealed. Tell me a little bit about telling that history. 
Well, you know, we we try to tell uh, our stories with all, as Ken mentioned, the complexities, contradictions, nuances that that our narrative can sustain. You know, it, there's the reason there are companion books is because all those extra details that I wrote in an original script and dropped on the editing floor, Ken would counsel me by saying, "Don't worry, you can keep it in the book." <laughs> but our general challenge and our general impetus is to how do we keep this as rich a stew as possible how do we get all these things <clears throat> in there and so in just what you just mentioned well uh it's not like the the united states government did not say um let's hire a bunch of people to go out and slaughter the buffalo because that'll help our quote indian problem because they won't be out pursuing them and we can confine them to reservations. What prompted those hunters to go out was a new technology uh, was able to turn buffalo raw buffalo hides into a leather that was perfectly suited for running the industrial machinery on the East Coast. And they were willing to pay handsomely for it. Those uh, you know tanneries were. Uh, and they had an insatiable desire for it. And so thousands of men rushed out there. They weren't ordered out there um, and started indiscriminately killing millions of buffalo, stripping only their hides, leading everything else to, to rot. Now, the government, as I say, did not necessarily order them to do, do it. They did nothing to stop it. And in certain quarters of the federal government, they heartily approved of it. Right. There were there were there were people who said this this will help with our quote Indian problem. Right. And so there's 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 a larger truth there. And actually the larger truth is the tragedy to the buffalo and the and the native people um, who relied on the buffalo. And there's a whole mix of competing or you know self-supporting or uh, mutually supporting um, uh, things going on with it uh, that uh, is important to know I think as you make uh, as you look back on it to understand well that can that kind of stuff can be happening today can it you know the market forces could be leading to people wanting to to poach, rhinoceros horns in in Africa because there's a great demand of it in Asia because they think it may be an aphrodisiac, right? But it's not the government necessarily sending them out there to bring that species to near extinction. It's, you know, it's a demand for it. I, I want to play another excerpt from the film. And um, as we've said, I mean, there were more than 15 million bison roaming the land and they were brought to the the brink of extinction you could count them in the hundreds uh, before things started to go the other direction and and this excerpt from the film is about just the wanton destruction the wanton slaughter of these animals let's listen there is no no story anywhere in world history that involves as large a destruction of wild animals as happened in North America, in the Western United States in particular, 
between 1800 and about 1890. I mean, it is the largest destruction of animal life discoverable in modern world history. Why Americans are so destructive, I think is an important question to ask. Why is that part of our story? Why is that part of our history? When the hide hunters went broke, some turned to killing other animals for the market, like antelope, elk, and grizzly bears. With wolf pelts worth $2 each in New York City, some hunters began lacing bison carcasses with strychnine, which poisoned not only wolves, but other scavengers, coyotes, foxes, bobcats, skunks, vultures, ravens, eagles. The voices of American writer and historian Dan Flores and Rosalind Lapierre, an indigenous writer, environmental historian, and ethnobotanist. And I mean, it's clear that the destruction didn't end with the bison. Of course, the elk and the strychnine in these in these carcasses were killing so many other creatures. It makes us take a good, hard look at us and our culture to think about this incredible destruction, Ken? Yeah, I mean, it's on us, right? There's no way to avoid this glare, just as we're having discussions about the sanitizing of history in other places that we don't want to own up to the fact that we proclaim that all men are created equal, but chattel slavery went on in the United States for four score and seven more years. Um, this is the tough stuff to do. This is the greatest slaughter of wildlife in the history of the planet, and it's on our watch we're responsible for it. It is, as Dayton said, prompted uh, by these market forces, but there was this extra added benefit to it for white people, uh, which was it would solve the Indian problem. Theodore Roosevelt, before he's president, says it, you know, sad to lose the buffalo, but pretty probably going to happen and necessary if we're going to deal with the Indian question and these savages. He uses that word. This is an, the slaughter of the buffalo is a tool of white supremacy. And there are not just them, one monolithic Indian group. There are 300 nations, at least in the continental United States, all of them with individual cultures and languages, sometimes as different from one another as Frenchmen are from Germans. And it is um, a, a sad task that even to begin the story, you have to just begin to unpack the dimensions of this tragedy, the just the horror of that wanton slaughter, our destructive nature, which it is revealing, and then this other other thing that we also get this twofer, you know, we also get rid of the Indians too. We make them more docile. We starve them. Indians literally starve to death because there are no buffalo and they're much easier to move under reservations. And suddenly uh, all of us who speak of property rights, it's a dominant theme in the, in the West right now, but that you only press zero to start that discussion after you've gotten rid of the people who were the stewards of that land before, who did not actually acknowledge the same kind of property. George Horse Capture Jr. from a small tribe in north central Montana says, my cattle, my land, it's an anathema. And so I think the film helps to uh, at least have a stop for a second and wonder what that momentum of manifest destiny was actually about. And, and it 
it doesn't take away from the good aspects of what the story of us, both lower and upper clays, has meant, but it also means you cannot tell the story of us by purely sanitizing it. And by, you know, if you, if you presume, as I do, a kind of exceptionalism, you've got to be as rigorous in your self-examination, as critical as you can possibly be to remain and to be and to remain exceptional. And I think the Buffalo story just reminds us that we've got to have and own all aspects of our history because then it's possible to move a little bit farther in this story and understand that it has possibilities for inspiration, that it has possibilities for repair, that human beings like Theodore Roosevelt can change. Maybe not he doesn't go as far as we'd want him to, but other people, a rancher in the panhandle of Texas, Charlie Goodnight, the Comanche leader uh, of the Quahada band, uh, Quana, um, Michelle Pablo in, near the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana, a guy in New Hampshire, our state, where that was helping tend a herd of buffalo uh, there, you know, a taxidermist with the Smithsonian who never changes his sort of white supremacist ways, but moves from killing and stuffing them to starting the National Zoo and then the Bronx Zoo. And so you've got a, a, a group of people that represent us. And I think as we come to terms with it, then at the end of the story, you begin to realize that there's some wonderful opening up. The buffalo is saved. This is a parable of de-extinction. Don't want to ruin the film for you. But there are lots of questions that are still being asked. So Dayton and I have been saying almost from the beginning of editing, as we were beginning to see the kind of tiger we had by the tail, that this was the two parts of our film are really the first two acts of a three-act play. And the third act asks some really important questions that go beyond just merely saving a species. And that's, I'm, I'm interested in, in this because of the way in which the film so interacts with the present. Most of our films are very much about the past. And as Mark Twain is supposed to have said, rhyme with the present. This one really interacts and has a conversation with the present and our future. And it speaks to us about which kind of Americans we're going to be. Are we going to be transactional Americans or transformational Americans? Are we going to be acquisitive Americans only? Or are we going to find out that there is a symbiosis among all living creatures and that the native people have so much to teach us about what it might be to be stewards of the land and not just owners, not just my cattle, not just my land. And this is my fence and you can't come in this place. I am talking with Ken Burns and Dayton Duncan. They are the team behind so many extraordinary documentaries that have aired on PBS over the years. And they have a new one. The American Buffalo is a two-part documentary. It premieres on PBS nationwide on October 16th and 17th. Also, there's a new book that goes along with this documentary. Duncan and Burns have co-authored the book Blood Memory, The Tragic Decline and Improbable Resurrection of the American Buffalo. And I don't want the hour to end without mentioning this fun fact. Dayton Duncan grew up right here in Iowa in Indianola. We will talk more after a break. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. The American Buffalo, a new two-part documentary directed by Ken Burns and written by Dayton Duncan, premieres on PBS Nationwide on October 16th and 17th. Ken Burns and Dayton Duncan are here with me now. Just before the break, Ken, you threw out a whole bunch of names of people who were involved in... um, preserving this species. So the the bison were almost exterminated. There were so few remaining in this country. And no one person is responsible for saving this species. In fact, that would have been impossible because then there would have been no genetic diversity among the bison that remained. But it's such an improbable collection of individuals that that wound up in some way coming together to preserve this species. Dayton, why don't you help us understand, I mean, some of these individuals? And, and I think we should start with George Bird Grinnell, who was a man who was one of the first people who said, hey, these animals are going extinct and that's bad. Yeah, I mean, let me just say, as you mentioned, it's just this incredibly motley collection of Americans in very different places that each, for their own reasons, decided, well, I'm going to try to save a few buffalo and start a herd. And and in doing so, did save the species from uh, extinction. George Bird Grinnell was uh, a very wealthy uh, Manhattanite. His dad was a, a prominent banker, uh, but he also studied uh, paleontology at Yale. He went west as a young man, and it changed his life. He met Native people, uh, became interested in them, their history, their stories as fellow human beings, not as some lesser type of human being. Um, digging up fossils in the West gave him a hands-on experience about, you know, species can go extinct, which was, you know, a fairly new, uh, he was a hunter, and uh, he then took over as a as the editor for a, a hunting magazine called uh, Forest and Stream. But he tried to turn it into not just, you know, here's the latest kind of rifle here, and here's a nice fishing story from Wisconsin, um, or if some pheasant were shot in uh, northwest uh, Iowa, and here's the here's the person to t- bring us that yarn. He tried to turn it into a platform to propose hunting regulations, hunting laws, and uh, and an ethic of you you cannot, you know, the market hunting of many of these wild animals is going to destroy them, and that has to be stopped. And uh, so he fortunately took under his wing another rich, young Manhattanite whose name was Theodore Roosevelt. And he chastised uh, Roosevelt's book that he wrote that Ken mentioned that more or less said, well, it was kind of a tragedy for us hunters that there aren't any bison left, but, you know, 
It was a blessing. They used that word. It was a blessing for civilization, actually. And um, white advance. Grinnell, Grinnell mildly chastised it, and Roosevelt burst into his office and wanted to complain, and they became a friendship, started a hunting organization. So there, uh, I, I'll, I'll take you know too many too much time to tell you uh, all, all the others, but as Ken said, a hard-bitten Indian fighter cattle driver named Charles Goodnight. Uh, his wife convinces him to save a few bison and start a herd. He then uses some of those uh, bison to help out neighboring tribes like the Kiowas and the Comanches and the Taos Pueblo to provide them with buffalo for their most sacred ceremonies because they the tribes couldn't didn't have any. Um, and he becomes a, a, a good friend with Kwana Parker, who himself has made a journey from being a you know a you know a, a warrior who killed you know uh, Texans in particular and uh, fought the army and and went after the hide hunters to be a man of peace and um, he and Roosevelt meet and Roosevelt sleeps on his porch on in the Oklahoma reservation. I mean, there's there's all these people and each of them have these interesting stories and what it reminded me of Charity was. When we did our film on the national parks, what we came to understand is the story of each of those parks is the opposite of what we normally think. But what the real story is underneath it were individual Americans falling in love with a specific place so much that they worked their butts off to try to get the federal government to protect it so that generations they would never know or see might fall in love with that same place the way that, that they had. And the the stories of these different people saving the buffalo, uh, it was a hodgepodge of Americans who kept it on life support for a while. And then some of them, this guy from New Hampshire, Ernest Harold Baines, helped congeal it into a, a national movement that finally resulted in the most unlikely bison migration ever. I have just a a short excerpt from the film that describes that moment when those bison arrive from the Bronx Zoo, which is one of the most powerful moments in the film. Um, let's let's listen to that. Seven days later, they arrived at the train station in Cache, Oklahoma, and were taken 12 miles by wagon to a holding corral before their release into the preserve. Among the spectators awaiting the bison was Quana Parker, along with other Comanches and Kiowas, some of them old enough to remember the days when buffalo covered the prairie, some of them children who had only heard about buffalo in stories. I'd like to think there is a calling out to the buffalo. Tasivu, Tasivu, calling out to those buffalo and being able to try to continue, being able to reestablish some kind of relationship between Comanches and those who have for generations provided so much for us. What must have gone on in their minds, you know, in their, in their blood memory, they had to be uh, amazed and probably joyful. Um, also a kind of remorse, a kind of sadness. 
Walter Parker cried when he saw the buffalo return. I can imagine that, you know, I think that could be true not only of him, but of many other people who witnessed this miracle of return. We heard the voices of Dustin Tamakera, professor of indigenous media at the University of Oklahoma, and N. Scott Mamaday, poet, novelist, Native American scholar in that. And it, it is such a powerful and moving moment when these bison are returned to the West. But there was this line in the film that that just put things in such stark relief for me when in your narration, Diane Dayton, you, you know, you wrote that when the bison were slaughtered, it was done at the cost of indigenous people. When the bison were returned to the West, it was done at the cost of indigenous people. This wasn't just a happy, peaceful moment where finally we're doing the right thing. There still were so many difficult parts of that story. Well, they marked the two bison preserves, principal bison preserves in Oklahoma and in northwestern Montana, were on reservations, but uh, parts, parts of each of those reservations that the federal government had taken back from, uh, from the tribes. On the one hand, uh, the, uh, the buffalo were brought back into the proximity of uh, native people, and there's nothing but good to be said about that, and put on larger uh, tracks than they would otherwise have been back east or in zoos, and that's all good. At the same time, uh, the history of who controls the land is a deep and complicated one that you need to be reminded that that, that the the return of the bison to these sacred places for these tribes, that those sacred places like the Black Hills for the Lakotas and Cheyenne and the Wichita Mountains for the Comanche and Kiowa and the part of uh, up in northwestern Montana for the Salish and Kootenai. Um, they were, that had been their homelands, and, and a lot more than that had been their homelands. And then they got put under re- reservations that were much smaller than what they had once, you know, had dominion over, and that that wasn't enough. They, those even got broken up and sell, sold for homesteading, and those two parcels that I mentioned were actually land that had been theirs, you know, from time immemorial for 10,000, 12,000 years. It's still today, the exciting story is that there is a movement now, as Ken mentioned, it, Act 3 is underway. And we hope our film will help people understand why that is so important, why it is so exciting of moving, moving uh, buffalo back to reservations where they will be overseen by the people who know the most about them with 12,000 years of ex- of experience and reconnect them uh, this intimate connection that had been 10,000 or more years old and then in the space of 100 years of American history severed. And now it's being restored both for food sovereignty and for their, uh, for the spiritual elements of it and it's just incredibly exciting and it is incredibly important and important for the particularly on the great plains for the restoration of those areas where the bison are are, are going to be roaming again because they are a keystone species to a well-functioning 
great, great planes. We're we're going to run out of time. I could talk to you guys all day. Um, I I do want to ask you, you know, in this country, we just love heroes. And that's part of the conflict that, that we are having today, because humans contain multitudes. And as you've just said, you know, you've talked about Teddy Roosevelt, who was a very strong white supremacist and wanted to get rid of the Indian problem while saving the bison eventually. These are complicated people. These are complicated stories. And you, I feel like, do a beautiful job staying, saying instead of either or this person is a hero or a villain, both and. And Ken, tell me how you think about that, because that's a hard story to tell in America today. Well, we live in a binary world, don't we? Everything is a one or a zero. Everything is a red state or a blue state, uh, you know, rich or poor, gay or straight, black or white, whatever it is. We like that. There's nothing really binary in nature about this. And I think that we live, therefore, in a kind of superficial preoccupation sometimes in a media culture with heroism. And we presume that heroism implies perfection, and therefore we are continually disappointed. But heroism, as we inherit, say, from the Greeks, is not about perfection at all. It's a fact, these kind of object lessons. Let's take the word boldface name from our celebrity culture and say, well, those are what the gods are, aren't they? They're the boldface names. And what we observe in the gods and why we tell their stories and their tales is they're instructive, not about perfection, but in fact about imperfection, which is built into every person. And so heroism is in fact not just perf- not just about perfection, it's about the negotiation and sometimes the war within a person between their strengths and their weaknesses. And so Achilles has his heel and his hubris to go along with his great strengths. And we are watching this. And the object lesson with these bold-faced names, if I can continue, the God and celebrity uh, thing, is to teach us that we are like that. And we see that we have those. Unfortunately, we have shed a lot of that complexity in favor with the tsunami of information we have in sort of being able to say, oh, that's a white hat. Oh, that's a black hat, you know, and to make the determination that way. And no one's like that. No one can be married. No one can raise children if you think everything is binary. It just does not work that way. And so what we've tried to introduce into our stories is not anything new. It's just what they are. In fact, I think people tie themselves up into pretzel knots trying to figure out if you can decide this. Theodore Roosevelt in our film is not a villain after we've communicated the information that we told you. He just is. He's a guy. And you can't just say he's a product of his time because he's also, as Stuart Udall told us for our film on the national parks, he has distance in his eyes as if he can see around not just the curve of the earth, but what's going to happen and does things that prepares the national parks and our own ideas to be preserved for our children's children, children. This is a man with vision as well as these reprehensible views. And so we can understand the migration in the life of Charles Goodnight without having to come down on one side or the other or to cancel somebody because they have this aspect to them, to use a modern term. And so these complicated stories are all 
you know, exactly how we all live. And yet somehow when they get outside of us, we want a simplicity. You know, Honey, how was your day? It's like, can provoke incredibly nuanced tensions and things that occur within your own day. And just as war and peace can contain by Leo Tolstoy can have just all of these things. And so what we've tried to do in our work is just love and represent that complexity, that undertow, those contradictions. That's what we do. And it's incredibly exhilarating, as Dayton's described, to just try to work and nuance that, to give and take away uh, at the same time, because that's the evidence of all of us. And so the stories, I think the success or whatever, the popularity of the films has to do is people recognize that these sound like real people. Right. Even even when you've got a big, huge, complicated story like the Roosevelt's, what you've done is what we've tried to do is make them recognizable as human beings, in addition to their outsize and enormous contributions, positive and negative to the world, uh, in addition to the United States. And so that's, you know, it's just how we roll. We have in our editing room a, a neon sign in lowercase cursive that says, it's complicated. Ken Burns and Dayton Duncan, it has been such a pleasure and an honor to talk with both of you today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. The American Buffalo, a new two-part documentary from Ken Burns and Dayton Duncan, premieres on PBS Nationwide on October 16th and 17th. They have also co-authored the new book, Blood Memory, the Tragic Decline and Improbable Resurrection of the American Buffalo. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. This episode was produced by Caitlin Troutman. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is Talk of Iowa.